0: Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in prayer in the precious name of Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for the music that we've heard, for the worship that we have experienced this morning. And God, I pray that right now as we open up the Word of God, that you would take it, that you would honor it. And God, I pray that uh, it would not come back to you void as the Scripture has promised. And then God, I pray that When the invitation is given here in just a few moments, I pray that we would have a great encounter with you. And we'll pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the Bible this morning. We want to turn to Psalm 146. As we do, we're finishing up this series of messages next week in Psalms. And um, as we come this morning, I'm reminded of something that happened to me a long time ago. First church I pastored, I was talking to this man that um, was very active in the church before I came, and during the interim time, he had dropped out, and you just have to understand, very small church, everybody knew one another in the community, and so I would visit him pretty frequently. In fact, he was building a house right down the road from the church, a log cabin, and he had built the, the, the place, and you know I noticed that he was treating the, the lumber or the, the, the beams with kerosene was just how he treated it and when he moved in i could smell the kerosene even you know that kind of thing and so he and his family moved in here into the house he built it himself and it was really a nice house it really was and i never will forget the look on this man's face when i stood beside him and finally as he knelt down kind of squatted as he watched his house go up in flames They say it's nothing quite like losing a house, losing your home, except for losing, of course, a a close relative. But as he did that, I could tell with everything that he had put himself through in life, with everything that was going on in life, and the fact that he really kind of abandoned his relationship with God, he had the look of total hopelessness on his face. Now, maybe you've never gone through anything like that, but You have experienced hopelessness, that feeling of hopelessness, whether it's long term or kind of temporary. You know, there's something going on. You feel like you've missed your last chance at at the career that you wanted, or the job that you wanted, or the you know something's going on with your children, something's going on with your marriage, and you feel that hopelessness inside. And somebody will come to you, of course, a well-meaning Christian, and would say, "You know, what you need to do is what? Just trust." The Lord, right? Don't you love those folks, man? They mean so well. Just trust the Lord, and you wonder, you know, do you even know what that means? You know, I don't even know if they know what it means or not. Like they, they've been living in a bunker since World War II or something, and you know, just trust the Lord. Well, that's kind of what the psalmist is saying to himself. This is a psalm where it's this man's writing a psalm to himself. And he's, he's calling himself to do something in order to get out of this hopeless feeling. And as we open up the Bible in Psalm 146, we find that this psalm really is, is bracketed by praise. Look in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I yet live. Verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. In fact... During these last five psalms, you will read them and understand that they are the hallelujah psalms. They are all about praising God. Now, as we look at this, I want us to see three basic things. One is the the call of the soul, what he's asking his soul to do as he talks to himself. Then the cry of the soul. Then finally, the confidence of the soul. Verse 1 and verse 2 tell us the call to the soul. Notice again in verse 1, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. He's calling himself, kind of commanding himself to worship God during his time of feeling helpless. Now we've said that worship is the act of assigning value to something in such a way that it engages our entire being. We looked at this in Psalm 95, how it engages the mind and the will and the emotions. And we are all called as uh, as, uh, as uh, Christians, to be worshipers. In fact, when you really get down to the, the brass tacks, all the way down deep within the Christian life, God has called us out to repentance and to follow Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins in order for us to become worshipers of God and have him first place in our life. I shared with you, I wrote a, a paper back in college for my college dissertation, was Christ be Lord, to be Savior, And at the moment of salvation, he really does because what you're really saying is, Lord, I'm repenting of my sins and I'm not going to remain as I am. You know, you can't really repent of your sins and remain as you are. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have a new object of worship because really what sin is, is really kind of going your own way, doing your own thing and doing what you want to do. Now, God, I'm no longer worshiping something else, but rather I'm going to worship you. Now, the option... According to the scriptures of not worshipping anything is just not there. We always you've already assigned supreme value to something in your life. In order to get, to be encouraged in this life and to really be able to trust God, we must know what our object of worship is. We must know what is holding first place in our life. You look at the first two commandments, have no other gods before me, don't worship any idols. Just not open that we don't have something of supreme value on the throne of our life, and it's so worship is so important because it really begins whatever we uh, place supreme value on, really begins to define our life. For example, we had um, the youth band just did uh, something the other on a Wednesday night. They had a youth night where the youth ran the whole show, show, and I got a chance to go in and hear the youth band. Man, they're really good. In fact, don't you agree? Yeah, it's good. It's good. And they're going to, in fact, they're going to take a Sunday morning. We're going to have a youth Sunday morning, one Sunday in July. So just something to look forward to, all right? And they're going to lead it. But, you know, I was talking to this one young lady, and I said, wow, you can really sing. And I'm sure, since it came from her pastor, she grinned a little bit and kind of shy, you know, that kind of thing. But, wow, what if someone, I don't know, I'm just picking out a singer, Celine Dion. Y'all know who that is, Right? Yeah, I think so. She came up to her and said, wow, young lady, you can really sing. You have a great gift. Because of who it came from, it's going to mean a lot more. And probably she would begin to define herself as a singer because someone that is really an expert in the field and great in the field has told her that she has a future. We begin to define ourselves by what we place first in our life. Now, here's what happens. Here's what happens. You are disappointed in life. We all go through those disappointments. We we all go through those down times in life. And I've discovered, I've discovered this. Let me quote this. I'm quoting myself, but I can't remember what I said. If, If the thing you want and do not receive causes you to be upset with God, then that thing is more important to you than God. If we become so disappointed and hurt with God, especially over a long period of time, I'm not talking about that day, I'm I'm talking about days and weeks to follow, that disappointment is so great that it gets into your soul, then that thing was more important to you. You place more supreme value on that than you do the Lord. That's why the psalmist, as he's trying to be encouraged, is calling himself back to worship, back to the place where he needs to be. The soul is crying out for something here, and he's crying out for something better in the future. That that makes sense, right? He's looking at himself, and we don't know who wrote this psalm, but he's looking at his present circumstances, and they say, you know, they're just not good. And I'm looking for something Better in the future. And so that means that we move on to our next point, the cry of the soulless for hope. Look in verse 3. Do not trust in princes and mortal men, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. How blessed is he who is help is the God of Jacob, whose hope. Is in the Lord his God. Now, a couple of years ago, I preached an entire series of messages. In fact, I think I preached an entire year on hope. And hope, as we've said, is not wishful thinking. Hebrews 11:1 says this as it begins to define what faith and trust in God is all about. Here's what it says. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so. Now faith, that first part, the assurance, the substance of something that is hoped for. In other words, I trust God enough to where I feel like that what I'm praying for, and that's what, what I'm hoping for, is already as good as in my hand. It's already there. And I'm acting as though I already have it. That's what the, Psalmist, the writer of Hebrews is saying. And so the writer of Psalms is saying, look, that part of faith that looks to the future is hope. That's what the whole biblical definition of hope is. It's not wishful thinking. It's looking forward to something that you trust God for. And so as we look at this, we we understand the Bible talks about, for example, a living hope of salvation. Listen to 1 Peter. Blessed are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, Do we just simply have a hope of our salvation? Wishful thinking. I hope I'm saved. Hope I live a good enough life. Hope I get there somehow. No. We have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. We don't do anything for that salvation. Christ has already done everything for that salvation. Now we look forward to that resurrection day. That's the hope he's talking about. He talks about a a hope. Of eternal salvation he talks about a hope of the second coming it's called the the great hope in our life the greatest hope Titus talks about this are we just hoping that one day wishful thinking the Lord is going to come back for us and take us to heaven no we we have an assurance of that now we're looking forward to it now why is that hope so vital Hebrews again I just quote from this book because it is a great Old Testament commentary You want to know what went on in the Old Testament, read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews says this, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Man, that's that's a lot of stuff. And you wonder, okay, that's that's a lot of stuff he's talking about. Now, excuse me, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Well, it means this. When you have an anchor, you have, it, you have an anchor tied to the ship, that makes sense, and then you throw it into the ocean, and the idea is that anchor is going to, to uh, hook into the ground or hook onto something at the bottom, near the bottom of the ocean that's going to anchor the ship. And so the ship is not going to be able to move, it's not going to be able to drift. Now, how important is this anchor, That's hope that we have, that hope acts as an anchor, Part of that anchor, that chain, is tied around to us. He says we have a hope within the veil. Now, behind the veil, as we've said before, in the Old Testament tabernacle in the temple was the the Ark of the Covenant, where there was a mercy seat. And one time a year, as we've said, that priest would go behind the veil and make sacrifices for the sins of Israel for the coming year but the point to the ark of the covenant was that's where god was really that was the presence of god in israel now we don't think about him being in a one place anymore whether it's in a church whether it's in a temple whether it's the ark of the covenant but it was back then that was the presence of god that's the reason there was a veil nobody could go and look upon god nobody could be that close to god because christ did not die had not died for our sins As yet, so one man was allowed to go one time a year. The idea here that Hebrews is giving us is that hope is like the anchor. We're we're tied onto one end and we throw it under the veil and it wraps around the Ark of the Covenant. That's what he's saying, going behind the veil. So that anchor, that hope that we have in God anchors our life. We don't drift because of it. We don't react to everything that comes along. We keep trusting in God no matter what may come in our life because it's wrapped around the very heart of God, the very presence of God in our life. And so you may be looking and say, well, I don't have any, I don't know if I have any hope. This is my last chance of of a job, Uh, last chance of marriage, you know, just... Lost someone, and I think that may be my last chance. And so he says, look, the problem is sometimes we misplace our hope. Look with me back in verse 3. Do not trust in princes. Now, princes were the rulers. They were the people that really made the difference. They were the decision makers, the people that are very important. He says, don't trust in this. They're mortal men in whom there is no salvation. They can't save you. Did they die on the cross for you? No. Could they die on the cross for you, for your sins, if they wanted to? No. Then he goes on to say, his spirit departs. The princes, they, they die. And he returns to the earth. And the very day, his thoughts perish. He says, look, men die. They can't rescue themselves. How can they rescue you? Proverbs 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots are the things that God, man has made. Some of us trust in the things that man make. Other trust in horses, the things that God makes. But point is, we're trusting in something that's not with the Lord. Verse 5, how blessed is he, who the God, this is the word El, or the mighty God, the rulership of God. And he says, the God of Jacob, Now, Jacob and Israel, same person. Why Jacob? Well, I think that the psalmist was just simply saying, look, he's a personal God. Let's get back to the personal name for Israel. It's Jacob. And so he says, he says, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. The difference, there's a difference in hoping that something happens and hoping in something. You know, some of you recall the song, maybe you've heard a million times on radio, which one of my favorites, Even If. I I quoted it when it first came out. And in that song, it says, hey, even though all these things happen to me, my hope is not still in you. He didn't say that. He says, my hope is you. My hope is you. Something very close, something very personal. What's the difference? Hoping that, well, I hope it's, not going to rain today. I hope it is going to rain today. I'm hoping that something happens. I'm hoping that I will get that job. I hope that uh, that person will marry that person. I hope that somehow my son will meet the right girl and change turn his life around. I'm hoping that something happens versus something in. Nothing wrong with hoping that something happens, but what do you place your hope in? For example, somebody says, well, I do think My really only hope is for my son to meet the right girl, and he's going to give his heart to Jesus and turn his life around. You're hoping in a girl. You're not hoping in Christ. But, Pastor, if I get that one job that I really need, I'll be happy in life. You're hoping in, not hoping that you'll get a job, you're hoping in that job, that happiness that is going to somehow fulfill your life. Some of you may be in business. This is a good example here. You're in business, and you're thinking, wow, I don't know what I'm going to do. I I don't know. I mean, I can't hardly pay the bills. I'm I'm barely getting by. What in the world is going to happen? And one client comes along, and you think, oh, my goodness. Lord, if I could get that one client, oh, my goodness, my problems will be solved. And you think, I I just got to put everything into this one client. And you you try to get that one client, try to get it and that one client falls through, and you lose hope. Why? Because instead of putting our our hope in God, we were putting our hope in that client. You see, there's a difference between hoping that and hoping in. And the psalmist is saying, I'm gonna place my hope in that which I place value upon. And he calls his soul to worship. He calls a soul back to following God because he knows that's where his hope is going to lie. Then thirdly, the confidence of the soul. The psalmist is calling himself to worship, and he says, look, i got to have some reasons. I've got to remember what God's all about. And he gives four things here that are crucial for us to know and to remind ourselves of if we are going to trust in the Lord. Let's look at them. In fact, let me just look at this. Look in verse 6. Look how many verbs are here. Look how many things that God does. Who made? Verse 6 also. Who keeps? Verse 7. He executes. He gives. Verse 8. The Lord opens. The Lord raises up. The Lord loves. The Lord protects. The Lord supports. Over and over and over again... We're reminded, and he reminds himself of all the things that God is doing. Now, he puts them in four categories, and they're all in these verses. Verse 6 talks about the fact that he rules. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. He is in control of all things. He rules all things. God is faithful in his relationships, and he can do it. Now, many people have a problem with that. Because they say, okay, now, if God loves me and he is in control of all things, then everything ought to work together and ought to feel good about everything. Isn't that Romans 8, 28? No, it just says all things are going to work for, together for the good. It doesn't say you're going to feel good about everything, but we'd think that. You know, come on, God. I mean, after all, these are my kids. God, after all, this is, this is my job. This is my career. I've got to be able to make a living for my family. And they're all important things. But we wonder, how in the world could it be that God rules and he loves and they don't come together? There's a book written, and I do not recommend it. It says, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People by Rabbi Kushner. And he determined in his book that God is a God of love. But he's not all-powerful. He cannot be. If he was all-powerful, all these bad things wouldn't be happening to good people. So he came to the conclusion that God is a God of love, but he just can't help because he does not have control over the world. And he even came to the end of the book and says, you know, God owes us an apology. That was pretty bold. But God does rule. In fact, if God doesn't rule, then we can't trust him. And I'm not saying that he's not trustworthy as far as character I'm saying if he doesn't rule then he can't do it he can't save you know the people that you're praying for he can't provide for you financially he can't because he just doesn't have control over it but the Bible teaches that he does the Bible teaches that he's sovereign he's a ruler over the entire universe there's nothing that God cannot do the question is Comes to us, can God do it? In fact, if I'm going to trust somebody to do something, I've got to have two basic things. Can he and will he? Can he? The answer is yes. And the psalmist brings himself to that point. He he created everything. He's done everything. He created the light. He created the world. He created the, the, the cosmos. He's created everything. And other psalms talk about this. We'll read one in just a moment. But here we find that God is so powerful that we can place our hope in Him. But then somebody says, Well, yeah, but God's just not fair. You know, if God is all powerful, then He's just not fair. Look in verse 7 who executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. God is fair. Now, this word justice means to give people their due, just to give people what they deserve, to give people what, what God thinks is, is appropriate. Now, this could come in two, two ways. Come in the negative, the judgment of God. You know, nobody really wants what they really deserve. I don't, I don't want what I deserve. I want the mercy of God and the grace of God, amen? I don't want the justice of God in my life. But there's also a positive side to it as well. And he says, he gives to the, the oppressed support. Now, one pastor said, one writer said, that there are really four, you might, he calls them, the quartet of the vulnerable in the Bible. The widow, the orphan, the alien, the poor. Four things, and God loves them enough to give to them. Now, this is foreign. This is foreign to the rest of the writings of antiquity. Most gods back in the Babylonian times, the Greek times, they served the princes. They served the rulers. Remember the story of Balaam maybe in the Old Testament where Balaam was a prophet of God and a man came to him and said, I want you to curse somebody for me and I'm going to pay you for it. So he paid Balaam some money. He goes to curse this guy and it turns out he blessed him and said, he said, you know, I told you to curse him. He said, I can't curse him. God won't let me. But you see, that's the way uh, the gods work. You paid the prophet. He goes. He, he prays that, um, that, that God would curse the people. He worked for the elite. Now, it, it, it seems here, and it is here, that the psalmist is saying, no, the Bible teaches that God works for the oppressed. You heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. The Bible teaches that God helps those who can't help themselves. And we're a testimony to that on a spiritual basis. Notice that unlike this, he says, unlike the world, he says in verse 7, justice to the oppressed, those who have no freedom, gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. You know, this, can I say this? This looks like a liberal agenda. That's what it looks like. Say, well, this couldn't be in the Bible. It's a liberal agenda. Can I, uh, Let me just share this with you. We look through lenses, just like these glasses. I'm looking. If I take these glasses off right now, I wouldn't be able to see you. And that would be okay. But I wouldn't be able to see the Bible either. And that, that would bring a lot of... Actually, I like to see your faces. I like to see that you're paying attention or not. <laughs> You know, whatever the, whatever the case may be. And so we, we look at things through it and we say, well, you know, here's let's see, this is your left. This is the liberal view and this is the conservative view. And the thing about it is, if I can just throw this in, it doesn't, if we throw out, for example, an environmental bill or issue, all the liberals would say, oh, this is great. I can't believe you wouldn't believe in this. And the conservatives say, oh, you know, that's not good. That-. We don't even read the bill. We have no idea what it says. Same thing with gun control. The conservatives would say, oh, no, you can't control guns. The liberals would say, well, any law that control, controls guns is a wonderful thing. We haven't read the law. I mean, there's nothing wrong, for example, and you know, I can go on record as saying this, I think we ought to outlaw all bazookas in preschool. <laughs> but if you did that, somebody would say, oh, a gun control law, you can't do that. Environmental law, oh, you just can't do that. We don't even read the law, why? because we're, we're looking through a lens. I've mentioned a social issue. I can't even remember what it was. And uh, it was on the other campus. And um, I, I know that uh, there's a different group of people. We have a lot of people there. 16, I think, people came last week over on the East Campus that were visitors for the first time. And so that's, that's a lot considering the crowd that they're having over there with 150 people. But I just mentioned something. And really, it was going to be On their side but they walked out before I they even gave me an audience just mention the word now here's what's happened people say well liberal conservative Bibles is sort of in the middle somewhere Bible's not in the middle somebody else and this is what's really happening conservative or liberal I'm sorry liberal conservative Bible and anything that we look at through the scripture we look at the lens of our political and ethical views and we interpret the Bible based upon these political or ethical views, and, and here they are. And other people do put it in the middle, go, go back and forth, back and forth. Listen, the word of God is not an opinion. The word of God is the truth, and it's not below it, it's not between it, it is above every single opinion that you and I would have. And if you wanna go by the truth, and think for yourself by the word of God. Go by the word. Go by what God thinks. Now, a lot of people think you're, you're screwed up because on one hand, you're over here, on the other hand, over here. What are you, liberal or conservative? I am biblical, you can say. I believe in the word of God and interpreting the world through the scripture. But here, we have something that is really not liberal, folks. It's, it's just church. The church ought to be feeding the hungry. You say, well, you know, we'll reach more people who feed the hungry. We, never, we, never mind that. We ought to just be doing it. We ought to be helping the internationals that are here. In fact, this fall, we're going to try to put this together, but this fall, there are international students moving here, of course, every year to UCF, and, and they're, they're setting up meals that you can invite an international student over at your house. They want to know about church. They want to know about what's going on in America. The perfect opportunity to welcome them not only in, but also to share the gospel with them. This is just simply biblical stuff. We have an English as a second language ministry. A couple hundred people involved in learning English and also learning the gospel every Tuesday night, I think Wednesday morning, Here's, here's something. My dad, who's now 89 years old, bless his heart, here on Father's Day, I'll mention him. Um, but um, he, he can't do a lot of witnessing now, sharing his faith. He does some. But he, uh, he's suffering from dementia. Uh, just can't remember things very well at all. But there was a day where he and a friend of his by the name of John Pugh not, had a goal This was about maybe, I think all this kind of quit about 10 years ago. But for about 10 years, maybe 15 years, every Saturday morning they went knocking on doors, and their goal was to knock on every single door to give everybody in Athens, Georgia, a chance to hear the gospel. Just the two of them. Uh, They didn't make it, but they made a good, concentrated effort. But he said, one young man they led to the Lord and a lot of times, you know, that people would pray a prayer and they'd never come to church and be discouraging. One young man they led to the Lord was from China could, could speak some English, pretty good. They got him to church, very curious about church, had received the Lord, followed the Lord and believers' baptism, and started growing. And for the next three, four years, as he was in school at the University of Georgia, He went to Prince Avenue Baptist Church and learned the Word of God. And then when he graduated with his Ph.D., he went back to China to teach and to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to that country. We can make a difference in that way. But here we find that God helps those who can't help themselves. Listen, God is fair. So, well, God's not fair to me. This is what's going on. This, is, you know, No, he is fair because if he fed your, your value, your God, you would never follow him. It's the goodness of God that leads people to the repentance. But I got to move on. My last two points really quickly. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Verse, verse 8, he cares. God cares. God loves you. He opens the eyes. The word eyes here in the Hebrew is just not there. It's just assumed. So really what it really reads is the Lord opens the blind. He can be blind to anything, including spiritual blindness of not being able to understand and not willing to understand the gospel. He raises up those who are bowed down. So not only does God have the power to do anything, the psalmist is reminding himself, he's fair in everything that he does, But he also loves him enough to do whatever needs to be done in his life. Finally, in verse 9, the Lord protects the strangers and supports the fatherless and the widow. He protects. He's there for us. He's there. He's in control of all things. He's there and he reigns. The Bible says in verse 10 that he's going to reign forever. He's king forever and forever and forever. Sometimes bad things happen to even good people. Good people, at least in our eyes. I don't know if many of you remember the story happened back in the 1980s, 1990s. Dave Trevecchi was a uh, pitcher for the San Francisco Giants and he um, got cancer, bone cancer, I believe it was. And it took him a long time, I think a year, year and a half, to, to get through this, the chemo. And, all the things that were going on. And the day that he came back to pitch for the Giants, the place was packed. And he pitched for the first time in like a year and a half. And he did really well. And the whole crowd gave him a standing ovation. It was, a, it was just one of those great feel-good stories. Dave Drovecki, a Christian, gave all the glory to the Lord. He said, you know, the Lord brought me to this place for a purpose. I'm going to live out that purpose. The Lord's in control. The next time he went out to pitch, when he threw a pitch, he broke his left arm. Broke it. He was just dangling right there on television. Went off the field crying. Of course, that's going to affect you. But he still said, the Lord is in control. The arm mended. And that year, the Giants got into the World Series I can't remember it was the World Series or the pennant, when they won the National League pennant, but there's always a pile-on. You know, some of you baseball fans realize that they're, you know, football, they carry the coach off, and uh, on, in baseball, they pile on the pitcher and, and, and smother him and kill him, and uh, they're jumping all over him, you know? And so Dave Trevecki ran out of the dugout, jumped on the pile, and in the midst of the pile, he broke his arm again. Ended his career but he still said, God is in control. I was, uh, I had the privilege of uh, sitting beside this guy on the plane. And uh, it's one of those, I won't say which airline it is. It's a good airline. I fly it a lot when I fly. But it's one of those where it's just a scramble, you know, to find your seat. No assigned seats. You know, what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) And uh, and you're just anxious the whole time, you know. (laughs) You know, gee, I'm in the B line, C line. What am I going to do? You know, that kind of thing. So, Boy, to my amazement, really, about five or six rows down, there was an aisle seat open. And yes, yes, there was a skinny guy sitting right in the middle. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the duo, you know what I'm saying? Can't get any better than that. Aisle seat with a skinny guy in the middle. You know, skinnier than, you know, than, than most. And so I sat down beside him. And I began to ask him what he did. And he told me, he began to talk and talk. Very friendly guy. And uh, I said, God, he's just never gonna ask me what I do. You know, ruining my, my way to get in, you know. I gotta think of something else. So while he was talking to his son, I pulled out my laptop, and I, I mean I, my iPad, and started just reading the Bible wasn't a plan. And I was just trying to read and try to think, how am I going to bring up this? How am I going to smooth it out and just just come right out and say, hey, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? You know, I mean, you know, that's kind of abrupt, you know. And he looked at my iPad. He said, huh, what do you do? And so um, I began to share with him what I did. Well, he lived here uh, other side of Orlando. And man, he, he began to Till I told my story, my testimony, witness to him. He told me his story and how he's jumped around. He said, you know, it's amazing because he's, ju- he's jumped around from assemblies of God, Catholic, assemblies of God, atheism, um, a cult that he was involved with at one time, and um, sort of nothing in between. He says, I'm still searching, and I've been searching for the last several weeks wondering do I need to get back in church? It's amazing, you should sit here today. And I'm starting to say, well, it's amazing, you didn't take the aisle seat, you were so skinny. <laughs> I mean, it's just, but I didn't, I didn't say that. I think I did, actually. Um, but he made a comment, and he said, I saw this billboard, he said, and it said, are you hurting? Jesus is the answer. And he said, you know, I think people, that's what really gets me. People take advantage. It seemed like people take advantage of um, your your plights, your, your, your difficulties. I mean, is that the real reason why you receive Christ, just because you're going through a bad time? Well, see, here's the thing. It's not that you're taking advantage of someone's situation, but what you're doing is giving them hope. Look. You're here. The goodness of God leads people to repentance. What does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the answer going through your troubles. He's the answer when you think everything is great and you're still not satisfied with life because Jesus Christ took on our sin for we can become worshipers of God. As the psalmist comes to the conclusion, praise God. And I want to praise God this morning for something that we don't find in this passage, but we do. It talks about judgment, if I can just go back to that for just a moment. And the negative is not here. You know, one of the things that I um, um, discovered and and look at in the New Testament, um, and I I think one of my seminary professors actually brought this out, but he said, when Jesus stood up to preach his first sermon, I remember my first sermon, you know, I preached... you know, I thought, man, I'll never get through with this in 30 minutes. Ten minutes later, I was finished, so I preached it again. And bad thing about it is nobody knew the difference. You know, that's the thing. But Jesus preached his first sermon, and it came out of Isaiah 61. If you remember that, uh, some of you that, um, um, I'm going the wrong direction. Isaiah 61, he took it right out of the Scripture. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, proclaim a favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance of our God. If you look at Luke chapter four, when he actually preached the sermon, he left that part out. Oh, take advantage, take advice from Jesus. Don't preach on the negative. That's not what he was doing. Jesus preached on the negative a lot, more than any other preacher Today does. Why did he leave that out? Because he didn't come that first time to this earth to bring God's vengeance on you. He came the first time to bring to bring God's vengeance on Himself for you. Bind up the brokenhearted, but not. It's not the day of vengeance of our God. It's a day of grace. And dear friend, if Jesus Christ will go to all the difficulty to die for you, he does have a purpose, he does have a plan for your life. And I ask you to come and worship God today. Worship him. Put him first, and he'll make the difference. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would speak to people's hearts even now. And dear friend, if you've never received Christ into your heart or you're not assured of that salvation experience, I want you to pray this prayer with me right now. You can pray it silently as I pray aloud. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming to bind up my broken heart, to help me in my affliction, to open up my eyes to the truth, to raise me up, to love me, to protect me, to support me. And I repent of my sins and everything that takes me away from you. And I ask you to come into my heart, my life, making me the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at CrossLifeChurch.com.